God, we gather this morning and we approach you with the words of Jesus from John 15, ever before us, where he declared, apart from me, you can do nothing. God, we want that to be so true this morning as we think about understanding this passage. Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing. Apart from you, Lord, all that we're doing this morning is just religious activity. Apart from you, we're just playing games today. And yet, God, we desperately want to be transformed in the deep places of our heart, and yet we cannot do that apart from your work. So, Lord, would you take this passage and would you change us through it? Would you show us, uh, Lord, what this passage means for us today? Would you be our teacher? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul in this passage is giving us instructions on uh, speaking in tongues, and we're going to get there in a moment, but I want to uh, maybe back up for uh, just a second and do a little bit of review, just remind us uh, of the context that we're in uh, in 1 Corinthians. Just to remind us, in chapters 11 through 14, Paul uh, has been really addressing three main issues uh, as it relates to the Corinthians when they were gathered together for worship. Uh, we saw in chapter 11, the first issue was, uh, was the topic of head coverings uh, that was tied directly to men and women's role uh, as they gathered together for worship. And then the second issue uh, related to the purpose and the function of the Lord's Supper. This third issue, and, uh, and probably most pressing to the Apostle Paul, has been the issue of, of spiritual gifts uh, as they were gathered for worship, and in particular, the unhealthy elevation of speaking in tongues. Now, two weeks ago, we walked through chapter 14, verses one through 12, and learned that Paul's main emphasis in this chapter is that when we are gathered together for worship, uh, one of the main purposes is the edification of the people around us. The main purpose is not about ourselves. It's not about kind of this individual spiritual experience between you and Jesus and there just so happens to be people around you. But the main purpose is edifying other believers. And so when we're gathered together, the purpose is not for you to be entertained. It's not for you to, uh, to feel something. It's not for all of your preferences to be met. It's actually to build up the people around you. And we saw that, that emphasis all throughout uh, verses one through 12. Paul's gonna build on that in the verses after that. But we saw how Paul contrasted speaking in tongues, which builds up the individual when there's no interpreter, comparing that to prophecy, which builds up the people around them. It's understandable, and so it edifies and needs to be a higher priority in the corporate gathering of God's people. All right, now, that's clear enough, right? We, we saw that, and, and we saw the emphasis on prophecy, but the lingering question that Paul is going to answer this morning is what are we supposed to do with speaking in tongues then? Are we supposed to just throw it out altogether? How do we best practice this spiritual gift? And so on the heels of verse 12, I think Paul gives us four principles of how to best practice speaking in tongues. Okay, we're gonna walk through each of these and get to application towards uh, the end. Here's the first principle that we see here in verse 13 very clearly is that Paul uh, is encouraging the one who is speaking in tongues, who has that gift, to make sure that they are praying for an interpreter. Now, verse 13 is a very important verse. It helps frame how we ought to think about speaking in tongues. 
Because when you get to the end of Paul's argument uh, after verses one through 12, and in particular, verse 12, we would anticipate the Apostle Paul to say in verse 13, okay, we're done with speaking, uh, speaking in tongues. All right, we're, gonna, we're gonna move that to the side and that's no longer going to be practiced. But Paul doesn't do that in verse 13. Paul sees a role in speaking in tongues as long as they are interpreted so that they can be understood and therefore edifying to the people around them. Okay, this is why he encourages the person who speaks in tongues in verse 13 to pray for someone to interpret them so that they can be understood and therefore edifying. If there's no interpreter, do not practice them in the corporate gathering of the church. Okay, that's principle number one, very clear and, uh, and simple. Here's the second one though, uh, verses 14 through 15, Paul is encouraging the person who's speaking in tongues to exercise the mind, not just his spirit. When you go to verses 14 and 15, Paul begins to talk in the first person now. He is speaking from his own experience. Paul's point is that when he prays in tongues or even praises in tongues, he is doing so in his spirit. And he says that does not bear fruit to his mind. It's not benefiting his mind, meaning it's not discernible. It's not understandable. It doesn't benefit the individual because it's not being understood, nor does it benefit the listeners, the people around them. That praying in tongues or, or speaking in tongues, praising in tongues is this ecstatic um, utterance through the spirit. And so it's not edifying the people around them. And so Paul asks a really good question in verse 15. Because that's true, Paul says, what should I do then? Well, Paul here, he resorts to praying in the spirit, but also with his mind, meaning with understanding, all right? Notice what Paul's saying here. Paul does not want to pray or praise or speak in tongues in a type of spiritual gibberish that doesn't benefit anyone, okay? So without an interpreter, he's going to push that to the side in the corporate gathering of God's people, all right, we'll talk about more of that towards the end. All right, here's the third principle, though. Third principle that we see here in verses 16 through 19 is that unintelligible tongues are more appropriately practiced in private. Okay, look with me at verse 16. He says, if you speak in tongues, how can an outsider, meaning someone who's inexperienced or unskilled in the faith, how can they agree or say amen to your thanksgiving? They can't. They don't know what you're saying. He says in verse 17, you, you might be trying to build up others, but since it's not understandable, it's not doing anything. Then Paul in verses 18 through 19, I think this is where Paul really shows his cards about speaking in tongues. Paul says, even though I speak in tongues more than any of you Corinthians, when the church is gathered together, I would rather speak only five words that are understandable compared to 10,000 words in tongues. That's a huge statement by the Apostle Paul. Think about how many words 10,000 is actually. I mean, like for me, when, I, when I'm preaching, um, 10,000 words is probably two and a half sermons, depending on, on how I'm feeling that morning. But about, it's about two and a half sermons. That's a lot of words by the Apostle Paul. And yet he says, I'd rather speak five words of knowledge that, that are understandable. So welcome to Pennington Park Church, done. That's five. 
what is Paul saying here? What does he mean? Is he, is he using this literally? I think what we're seeing here is once again, Paul is prioritizing the edification of the people around you over this personal individual experience. Paul is elevating, once again, speaking using gifts that edify other people rather than speaking in tongues, which without an interpreter only edifies the individual. See, the crucial question here is not whether one speaks in tongues or not. The big question here is what is most appropriate for public worship? All right, verse 19 helps us to understand that speaking in tongues, while might be appropriate privately in your action with the Lord, is not appropriate corporately. Or maybe think about it this way. If Paul is saying here that he speaks in tongues more than anybody in the church in Corinth, and yet when they're gathered for worship, he would rather speak five words of intelligence rather than 10,000 words in tongues, then the question is, when does Paul speak in tongues then? Paul speaks in tongues privately, right? That's where it's most appropriate. All right, now the fourth principle here, the last one I'll point out, is that unintelligible tongues are a sign for the unbeliever, all right? Verses 20 through 25, there are all kinds of questions uh, that are raised here that we need to answer. First question here is, is what is this quotation doing here from Isaiah chapter 28? When you look at the, these verses here, what's the connection there with speaking in tongues in the church? All right, also, what, what does Paul mean by a sign? And, and why is tongues a sign for the unbeliever? And why is prophecy a sign for the believer? All right, let's start in verse 20. We notice here this metaphor that Paul uses again of, of challenging the Corinthians to grow up in their faith. Right, use this in several other places like chapter three, verse one. Paul wants them to stop acting like a child as it relates to their thinking about spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues. He wants them to stop elevating speaking in tongues to the top rung of that spiritual gifts ladder and neglect their own behavior, their own pursuit of godliness. That's a big issue here in the church of Corinth. They were pursuing spiritual gifts at the expense of their own godliness. And Paul wants them to grow up in their thinking. All right, so in light of that challenge, Paul drops this quote from Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. This is a very loose quote by Paul. He seems to be mingling in there some application for the Corinthians. And this quote speaks to how God's people in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 28, they were hearing from foreigners who were speaking in these strange tongues, but they could not understand what they were saying. And so as a result of a lack of understanding, they could not believe in God and turn back and repent. And so therefore the speaking in tongues there, this foreign tongue was actually a sign for God's people in the Old Testament, a sign of God's judgment. Okay, now I'm gonna unpack that in a moment here. But just to give us some application here, just real briefly, I think this is an important principle, not just for speaking in tongues and in this passage. I think that this is an important principle when you think about the Christian life as a whole, that when you are convicted of your sin, when, when your sin is made plain to you, when you are understanding it, when your eyes are, are open to the gravity and, and the weight of your rebellion before God, 
That is an act of God's mercy before you, not an act of God's judgment. It is an act of God's judgment for you to continue walking in your sin, not feel the weight of it, not understand the gravity of it, and therefore not repent of it. You should be terrified if you are living in sin right now and you are not bothered by that, you are not repenting of that. But when God moves within you by his spirit and he's revealing the disobedience in your own life and you're feeling the weight of that, the sting of his discipline, that is an act of God's grace before you. Now, what Paul is saying here, I think using this quotation, I think he's, he's got two main points with this. Verse 22, he says, therefore, speaking in tongues, when the church is gathered together, and there's uh, unbelievers there, people who are unskilled in the faith, for them, the speaking in tongues becomes a sign of God's judgment on their lives. Why? It's because they can't understand the message. They can't understand the hope that's found in Jesus. And therefore they conclude, this is badness, this is crazy. And they're unable to repent and believe in God. Therefore, it's a sign of God's judgment on their lives. But then there's a second point, and this was brought up by a commentator who said this. He said, uh, tongue speaking in public worship is inappropriate in the first place because it places many of God's own people in the situation of feeling like foreigners in a foreign land and not at home in their own home. And so it's further pushback about why this shouldn't be practiced normatively without an interpreter when God's people are together. All right, now look at verses 24 and 25 with me because prophecy re-enters the conversation. All right, what Paul says here about prophecy is that it's different than how tongues were a sign for the unbeliever. Prophecy is a sign for the believer. But how so? Well, this kind of sign that prophecy provides for God's people is a positive sign. It's not a sign of God's judgment, unlike tongues, which was a negative sign, Prophecy is a sign for the believer's benefit because it displays that God is really among them, that God is at work. God is blessing the gathering of God's people. Okay, now to best uh, explain this, I wanna point out two things almost by way of reminder. First, we need to be reminded that the worship gatherings of God's people in the first century very different than how we gather today. In the first century, they gathered in homes. They were more like kind of smaller groups. We're not sure how many could be packed in to a given home. So there was a smaller amount and it was much more intimate when they were gathered together. In fact, more people had different roles when they were, when they were gathering for worship. You see that in verse 26, all right? And in fact, it seems to be that several were even prophesying when they were in this intimate setting as they were gathered for worship. Okay, now also this idea of, of prophecy, we talked about this two weeks ago, but my understanding of prophecy is that it's less about a, a prepared delivery of a sermon, right? I, I believe that because Paul is, is telling this whole church, you need to pursue prophecy, and yet there were women among them and women aren't called to preach. So I think it's more than just a delivery of a sermon, but it's not on the same level as the Old Testament prophecy, 
The, the prophecy in the Old Testament was basically, thus saith the Lord. It was on the, the same level as the authority of God's word. No, I think prophecy here is open to error. I think that we, we can see that because Paul says, you need to weigh these prophecies in verse 29. You need to, to test them, 1 Thessalonians chapter five. I also think prophecy in the New Testament here, it's not primarily about predicting the future. It's not about foretelling. I think it's about forthtelling. I think it's when the Spirit of God prompts somebody to share something with another believer that's informed or even grounded in Scripture, doesn't contradict Scripture, and it results in the edification of that person or, or, or the conviction of that person. All right, and what we see here in verses 24 and 25, this positive sign for the believer when prophecies exercise in the church, it oftentimes results in people experiencing the presence of God. Paul gives an example of, of an unbeliever experiencing this where prophecy is given, they're deeply convicted, the sin in their heart is, is revealed, it's exposed, it results in uh, presumably their conversion and their worship before God. And it's this declaration at the end here that God is truly among you that serves as a positive sign for the believers around them that God is at work and God is blessing that group of people, all right? But th these unintelligible tongues is a sign for the unbeliever. Now, two weeks ago, my challenge for us was in regards to this chapter, to not miss the forest because of the trees. Remember that? I, I'm, I wanna challenge us not to get lost in the details of speaking in tongues and, and prophecy and all the nuanced views that we miss the main thrust of this passage, all right? And so what I wanna do for the rest of our time together this morning is that I want us to, to look at some application for us as it relates to chapter 14 and what we've seen so far and what it means for us here at Pennington Park Church. I've got four points of application. Here's the first one is I think part of the, the challenge here is for us to deepen our understanding of the true purpose of corporate worship. I think that when we think about church and going to church, we tend to think that it is primarily about meeting our own needs. That even as we drive here today, we're thinking about, man, what is God going to speak to me about? And that's not all bad. But the main thrust of this passage seems to be having a focus on edifying and encouraging others when you are gathered together. All right, and let me prove this for you. The, the emphasis here of, of Paul using this word edification or building others up, he uses it seven different times in this chapter. That's a lot of, of times that Paul is emphasizing this idea of, of encouraging and building people up. Furthermore, he talks about gathering together or uses the word the church, which literally means the assembly of God's people, uses that 11 different times in this chapter. I think Paul is, is intimately linking the gathering of God's people and the edification of his people. In other words, the gathering of God's people is an indispensable reality of your growth and your sanctification in the Lord. That this is not optional what we do on Sunday mornings. This is not kind of icing on the cake. If you can get here, you get here. If something else kind of comes up in your life, you can skip. 
This must be a necessity for not only your growth in the Lord, remember, this isn't just about you, but for the people around you. See, I think that is, that's the big point here. Like I, I tried to trace the word edify throughout the New Testament and I tried to find uh, how many times it's used to edify you in, a, in an individual personal sense. And I couldn't find it. These are times where edify shows up. It's always in relationship to this communal experience of God's people. And I think the takeaway here is that for you, yes, when you gather here on Sunday faithfully and consistently, you will grow, right? You will grow not because of one sermon or one worship service. Like, like we, we rarely have like, like these, these one moments in our lives where there's a ton of growth. But I think we grow where week in and week out, you are making a deposit into your soul. Week in and week out, you are sitting under the preaching of God's word. You are giving praise to God with his people. You're experiencing fellowship among the believers. And week in and week out, you will find that you will grow incrementally and cumulatively. And, and it's pretty similar to how flowers grow or trees grow. Like they don't grow overnight. They don't grow after one downpour of rain. Like it's a daily process of, uh, uh, of getting water and, and you know, experiencing sunlight and the nutrients in the soil. Now I'm dipping into an area that I'm not very skilled in, but that's how we grow though. I mean, it's a, it's a week in, week out investment into your soul. This mysterious experience of being shaped as you corporately gather with God's people. Now that's absolutely true. But Sunday mornings is also about you investing in the growth of the people around you, edifying them, encouraging them. I think the beautiful reality of chapter 14 here is that while Sunday mornings includes you, it's not about you. While you are indispensable to the body of Christ, chapter 12 made that clear, you are not at the center of the body of Christ. And in fact, your role, individual role, impacts the whole. So you might come in here on Sunday and think, well, I'm not, I'm not the preacher. I'm not leading worship. I'm not leading communion. I don't really have a, 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 an instrumental role here. That's not true at all, according to chapter 14, that your call here is to come ready to worship. Yes and amen. Come ready to receive what the Lord has for you, but also to think about ways that you can encourage and edify the believers around you, how you can speak words of encouragement, how you can pray with people, how you can serve with them and use your spiritual gifts. I think it's one of the main emphasis in this chapter for us today. But then secondly here is to avoid covering up sin with spiritual gifts. I'm gonna draw your attention to verse 20 again here. Paul says two things that are really important and they're really challenging. Paul says for the Corinthians here, not to be children in their thinking, right? And how they viewed speaking in tongues too highly, but also tells them to be infants in evil. In other words, he's saying, do not excel in sinful behavior. Now, why does Paul tell them that? It's because this church in Corinth, as we have seen, had, had, had a lot of sinful behavior filling this church, We've seen this throughout almost every chapter. If you remember chapter five, we had the example of church discipline where this son was sleeping with his stepmother. And Paul says to the Corinthians, you're actually proud of this. And the Corinthians here, with all the sinful behavior that they had, were covering it up and even justifying it 
by saying, but look at how gifted we are spiritually. Look at, look at all that God is doing through our spiritual gifts. Look at the knowledge that we have. Look at the speaking in tongues that we have. And they were neglecting their own pursuit of godliness. Paul is telling them, look, you can't engage in sexual morality on Sunday afternoon and then come together Sunday evening and cover it up by speaking in tongues. You can't be engaging in sinful behavior that goes without repentance and then come into the house of the Lord and cover it up with exercising your spiritual gifts and smiling as if everything's okay. Paul here is challenging the Corinthians here and us to make sure that we are prioritizing the development of our character above all else, that your godliness is more important than anything else in your life. Your godliness is more important than developing your spiritual gifts. Your godliness is more important than that job promotion. Your godliness is more important than getting someone else's approval or, or another relationship or earning money, whatever the case may be. Developing your godliness, looking more and more like Jesus must be your highest priority here. Now, thirdly here, I think the other principle is to filter your emotions through God's word. Verse 20 again, Paul says, let your thinking be mature. Mm. He also says in verse 15, to worship, not just with your spirit, but worship with your mind. Okay, understand what Paul is saying here. Paul is putting a priority on exercising our minds, the development of our thinking, which happens through wrestling with God's word. Not just your spirit, not just your feelings or your emotions. All right, I think part of the application here is for us to filter what we are feeling, the emotions that we have through the power of God's word when we are worshiping together and not the other way around. And this is so tricky for us because so often we want to filter God's word through what we feel, through our emotions, right? But for us, our aim as we worship together is not to have a feelings-centered worship experience that leads into emotionalism. Now, here's the reality. Each and every one of us, we walk into this room with a particular kind of feeling or emotion, all right? Some of us walk in here with, with the sense of joy in their heart. Others of us walk in here maybe discouraged, maybe feeling weary, maybe a little bit of, of despair or fear or anxiety, whatever the case may be. Look, I want you to hear this this morning. That's a good thing for you to bring that into this space. Like we want you to not hide what's going on in your life or, or, or try to pretend that what you're going through is not really what you're going through. We want you to bring that into this room and yet what we want is for you to walk out of this room, filtering and processing what you are feeling through God's word. For you to ask the question, I feel A, B, and C, what does God's word have to say about that? How should I respond to my feelings or my emotions? How might God's word impact the decisions that are before me? See, what we want you to, to experience is not just to feel something as you walk out, we want you to be transformed by truth. Romans chapter 12, verses one and two says, do not be conformed 
to the patterns of this world, but be transformed, how? Through the renewal of your mind. That happens as we mature in our thinking, as we exercise our minds around God's word. I love what Heidi Sweet, our children's ministry director, calls parents, challenges parents, that when you pick up your kids in children's ministry, your first question to them should not be, did you have fun this morning? First question should be, what did you learn? What did you learn? Now you can ask the question, did you have fun later? but you lean into what did God teach you today? Yes and amen. That, that is what we want, even in this room, I want you to walk out of here as you're driving to lunch or whatever you're doing, not asking the question, hey, what, do you, what did you feel about that? No, we want you to ask the question, how did you engage with God's truth today? What did God reveal to you in his word? In other words, we don't want to just pump you up when we gather for worship in a way that if you remove the emotion, there's no depth, there's no foundation, there, there's no floor beneath that. But as we gather together for worship, we wanna use the word of God to exercise our minds, to, to grow in the maturity of our thinking so that we ground our whole experience here in something that is stable and strong and something that is actually outside of ourselves that's able to withstand our up and our down emotions, that our feelings come and they go. And so we wanna build you up, not with electrifying emotions, but we wanna build you up with the unchanging word of God. And here's why. Because Monday through Saturday, you will experience hard things. And so when you experience hard things, we want you to stand on something strong and lasting and firm and your emotions will not cut it. Your spiritual high will not last. That Hebrews chapter six, verse 19 says that you have one anchor to your soul, one anchor, and it is not your emotions. It is not the right circumstances. It is not your plan for your life that is going exactly how you want it to. The anchor to your soul is Jesus Christ, and we know him through the word of God. Now, this is important, not just in light of when we gather together, but this is a really important point as you walk with the Lord every single day. Let me give you an example. Think about temptation for a moment. I don't know if you realize this, but when you stop and you think about how you fight and how you battle temptation, so often we are prone to responding with our feelings rather than what is true. When temptation comes at us, when you are tempted to think about something you shouldn't, when you are tempted to watch something that you shouldn't, do something that you shouldn't, desire something that you shouldn't, we are so prone to gravitating in that moment to what do I feel right now rather than what is true. We think about my, do I desire this? Do I want this? Do I feel like sinning or do I feel like resisting? And so look, if your strategy in battling temptation is built on emotion, it's built on how you feel, you will never defeat temptation on a regular basis. Your feelings, they come and they go, they are easily influenced, but it is the word of God that we withstand and we resist temptation. Like I think this is why some of us erupt on our kids in anger because our children did something 
and it made us feel frustrated. That's why some look at pornography because that makes them feel good. It helps them escape reality. That's why some work too much or, or some shop too much or drink too much or gossip too much or, or, or covet too much. It's because what is driving their lives is what they feel rather than what is true. But look, grabbing hold to what is true in the midst of temptation, ah, oh, that, that has power in your life. Exercising your mind, maturing your thinking by rehearsing what is true in God's word will allow you to stand firm, be strong, and be unchanging in the midst of temptation. Look, not because you are those things, but because God is those things and his word is what connects you to who he is. So when you are in the midst of temptation, what truth are you rehearsing? What truth are you grabbing hold to to combat not only the temptation there, but also your feelings that wanna drag you down that lane and lure you in to that sin? Uh, truth from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, where it says, no temptation is uncommon to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He will always give you a way out. Claim that truth, live in that truth in the midst of temptation. Or Psalm 1611, for you have made known the plans of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. There are pleasures at your right hand forevermore. That in the midst of temptation, rehearsing that truth, exercising your mind and mature in your thinking. But the reality is, is that we are living in a culture that is training us to be feelings driven and not truth driven. Look at any key marketing strategy. Look at any hit song. Look at any highly rated movie. We, we are living in a world that is training us, trying to conform us to be feelings oriented and not truth driven. And, and friends, that ideology is creeping into the church in ways that I don't know if we're fully aware of it. Like if you stop and you evaluate how you're living in the Christian life, I just wonder if you're aware of maybe even how feelings-oriented you are in your relationship with God. That do you obey God when you feel like it? Do you pursue the Lord only when you feel like it? Reading the Bible, praying only when you feel like it? Loving others only when you feel like it? Look, we need to be aware of this temptation of putting our obedience to God within this prison of our emotion where the key is nowhere to be found. And I think the passage here, as far as maturing our thinking, is being convinced that God's word will give us everything that we need, that God's word will satisfy your desires, God's word will give you clarity and direction, God's word will help you endure when you are weary, God's word will remind you of his promises that are unfading, God's word will show us who Jesus is. That's why we want Sundays. The challenge is to engage your mind with the truth of God's word. That what we experience does not define who God is. Who God is defines what we experience. All right, now finally, last principle I wanna just help us with as far as application is to yearn for God's presence. Yearn for God's presence. I found verse 25 very interesting here. We see this connection here of prophecy that leads to conviction, 
that leads to worship and leads to this declaration that God is truly among you. And I have thought about that whole interaction there and, and how our spiritual gifts can be used in order to foster an environment where God's presence can actually be experienced. And I just, I wanna ask you this morning, and when you think about Sunday morning and you think about as we're gathering together, what are your expectations for you when you're, when you're here at church? Like, what do you really want? And I thought about that and, and I just, I hope and I pray that you're not here on Sundays just to cross it off your to-do list, that, that you don't go to church because this is what good Christians do. I hope that you don't go to church like for the kids because it's good for them. And just to be frank with you, I did not go into ministry just to do kind of a religious activity with, with a bunch of people every week. Like this is not a, a spiritual pep talk and the, the benediction is, hey, go get them this week. But Sunday morning is, is really an environment where the people of God who are filled and indwelt with the spirit of God are gathering under the word of God to praise and glorify the son of God so we can go and live out the mission of God. That's what we are aiming for every Sunday. And each element of that is really important that basically in this spiritual kind of mysterious uh, environment, we can experience the presence of God who is truly among us. That when we're here, it's not just this intellectual exercise. Yes, we want your thinking to be matured, but if you stop and you think about it, God is really among us. Like God is, is here with us and we get to experience the living God, not some abstract, distant, grumpy God on his throne, we get to experience the living God, the one who created heaven and earth, the one who put every star in the sky, the one who tells the sun when to rise and when to set, the one who, who commands demons what to do and they obey, the one who tells storms when to cease and they cease, that God who knows you, knows everything about you, your burdens, your struggles, your fears, your anxieties, that's the God that we get to experience as we gather together. And so when we come together, like I want you to yearn to experience God, to understand God, to know God better so that when you walk out of here, you can pursue him all the more. That I wanna be the kind of church where we're centered on God's word, we're understanding more of who he is, where we can declare together, God is really among us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you and we do praise you for, uh, Lord, this section of scripture. We, we do believe every word of the Bible is inerrant. Every word is true. Lord, every word is beneficial for our growth. It is edifying to us. And Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for, Lord, showing us again our need for even one another as we gather together. Or thank you for the church where we are never alone. But Lord, as we walk through this journey of faith in this hostile world, God, thank you that we have other believers to encourage us, to edify us. God, would you continue to mature our body, continue to grow our church into a group of people that not only yearn for you, that not only stand on your word, but are getting out of their comfort zones and investing in the people around them. We pray in Jesus' name.